This is the Hacker Valley Studio Podcast, exploring the human element behind cybersecurity programs and technology. We've all been down the path of integration, normalization, and operationalizing our security data. The common theme is a traditional SIM can't keep up, which is why we say run Panther. Panther normalizes your security data and integrates into your security operations pipeline to provide complete visibility across your environment. Panther is a cloud-native security analytics platform built for engineers by engineers. Learn more by visiting runpanther.io. Thank you, Panther, for sponsoring this episode. What's going on, everyone? Welcome back to the Hacker Valley Studio podcast. This episode is all about detections. What are detections? How detections are used in security and how detection engineering is really an engineering related problem. And to discuss this topic, we've brought in Nick Hackmiller, Senior Engineering Manager at Panther Labs. Nick is an absolute expert when it comes to detections, and he pushes a hot button topic when it comes to automation between Chris and I. Sit back and enjoy this episode. Let's jump right into it. What's going on, everybody? You are in the Hacker Valley studio with your hosts, Ron and Chris. Yes, sir. Welcome back to the show. Glad to be back again, along with friends, experts. We have an expert from Panther Labs today with us. Today in the studio, we have Nick Hackmiller. Nick is Senior Engineering Manager of Security Engineering at Panther Labs. And we're going to talk about a bunch of things. I cannot wait, but Nick, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks. Thanks for having me, guys. Happy to be here. Glad to have you here, Nick. We're going to be talking about one of my favorite subjects in the world, which is detection. But before we get to that, we'd love to hear a little bit about your background and what you're doing today. Yeah, sure. I studied computer science in college, University of Illinois, go fighting Illini. Uh, <laughs> did that for a few years. Got to uh, do some work on the university's cybersecurity team for the cross-college security team, which I was pretty interesting. Sort of my first exposure to proper security work, just as a you know student observing. From there, worked briefly at uh, PwC, doing some technical consulting. Then moved on to my first real, real security job at a company called Riverbed, San Francisco. I was there as a security analyst, did that for a few years, but a big part of my job there was actually sort of administrating and running their Splunk uh, deployment. So that's where I really kind of first got involved in doing operational security work and, you know, detections and looking, you know, threat hunting and all the, all that cool stuff. So did that for a few years, then got reached out to by a company called Panther Labs. They brought me on to be a security engineer you know, I was super excited to join the company, loved what they were doing, quickly moved from sort of an internal security role into a sort of product, product-facing, product security, internal security role, mishmash. That's how tech startups go. Did that for a few years, and now I'm a manager at Panther. So I'm running the security engineering team, which is the team we built up to 
kind of take all the stuff I was doing for a five-person startup and apply it to a 30 or 40-person company that we have today. It seems like you've been able to kind of move your way up that technical ladder pretty quickly. What would you say was the really the beginning of this interest in technology? Did this show up for you when you were younger? And tell us a, a little story around that. I was first exposed to kind of computers and programming. I would say really in high school. I mean, my family had a computer before that, but I never really worked with it. You know, Microsoft Word and that kind of thing. But I was fortunate enough to go to a high school that offered a intro to Visual Basic <laughs> course. So I signed up for that. It seemed pretty interesting. It was fun enough. From there, I went on to take the Java and C++ courses. Those were interesting. That kind of piqued my interest in working with computers, working on computers. And actually, the first, I guess you could call it semi-whatever security-related thing I ever did um, was in that C++ class. I was learning about writing multi-threaded applications, right? Applications that have multiple threads running at once. And one of the one of the big warnings was, you know, don't fork too many times, right? Don't create too many processes in parallel, or else it'll crash the computer, or, you know, or let's say it'll consume too many resources. And I was like, huh, that's kind of cool. I wonder if I could do that on purpose to, you know, crash <laughs> crash this cool computer. So I wrote a little like, I guess, rudimentary fork bomb that just, you know, would lock up the computer and fly the press the power button and we started. So that was sort of my first, very first exposure to computers and really programming and technology and working in that whole space. And I guess as as later you could tell, my first interest in sort of adversarial and security related concepts. Yeah. And now you've switched from looking at it from an adversary perspective to catching the adversary. You know, what kind of problem statements are you solving today now that you're at Panther and working with detections? And actually, maybe we should start with explaining what detections are in your world. When I think about detections, what I think is that somebody out there, some bad guy did some bad thing and we weren't able to stop it, right? And that's going to happen most of the time. Most of the time, you stop all the stupid stuff, but most, a lot of the time, something bad slips through, it already happened or it's in the process of happening. And detection is looking at all the sources of data that you have available to you to catch that bad guy as fast as possible, ideally before too much damage is done, uh, so you can respond and remediate the issue. Detections at Panther, what that looks like is we actually write these detections using uh, Python code. So all of our detections are written in Python. Uh, it's sort of the standard process logs come in, we parse them, we normalize them, we send them through a detection pipeline, and those detections are written in Python to analyze all these logs as they're coming through the system, figure out what might be malicious, what might not. If something's malicious, alert the appropriate teams or kick off the appropriate automated processes to respond to that. One thing I wanted to ask you about is detection as code. That's that's something that I got introduced to at Netflix, but it's something that's relatively new to the cybersecurity space. Could you, in a nutshell, explain what detection as code means for everybody out there? The XYZ as code, you know, concepts have been kicking around a bit. The big one that I'm sure everyone's heard of is infrastructure as code. But the idea is that there's a lot of standard today processes and procedures that are involved in sort of the practice of, of software engineering and software development. Things like version control and PRs, uh, pull requests and reviews and approvals and end-to-end -end testing and things like that. These are all great concepts for writing good software, 
but they're also applicable to so many other spaces like deploying infrastructure, or in this case, writing detections. So for us, what detections as code means, it's not just that the detections themselves are written in Python, which is a programming language, it's really the whole ecosystem around writing detections, right? So we have our repository on GitHub, that's where all of our detections live. We recommend our customers fork that repository so they can customize them for their personal use cases. We have uh, continuous integration and continuous deployment models, CICD models, so that as our analysts write new rules, write new detections, we analyze them, make sure that they fit our standard, make sure that they pass our tests, make sure they're not gonna break something, right? Make sure that uh, someone else on the team reviews those changes and approves them. And then once it's all been approved, automatically deploy them to our production monitoring environment. So we don't have to worry about someone, you know, hand crafting a query in some user interface somewhere and clicking save and then to edit it, someone else has to like search through that person's queries, you know, and find the thing and update it and who knows what's how it's being managed. So for me, detections as code is not just writing detection in a programming language, but really the whole ecosystem of sort of software development practices uh, being applied to the act of writing detections. There is a lot of power in that, having your code be part of your SDLC process, but also mm -hmm. having your detections be something that are deployable and maybe something that can be put on a job or a trigger to alert you when specific things happen. It sounds like it saves you a lot of time and also kind of formalizes this detection process. And I'm sure that sounds great for everyone, especially someone like me who is so into automation. I love taking the output from detections yeah. and doing automated response. But before we even get to that, how do you know if you're ready to go down this rabbit hole of this topic called detection as code? What are some of the prerequisites that need to happen before you can look at something like that? At Panther, we think that one of the things that we say is, uh, you know, security is an engineering problem, right? So it's not just having some super elite, you know, red team hackers on your, in your org that does a bunch of pen testing all the time and, and finds poorly configured things and go fix it. I mean, that's definitely a part of a security picture. But when you start looking at companies that are operating in, say, the cloud or in a very complex, you know, SaaS environment where nothing is on, on your own site anymore, right? Or if you're trying to move to a zero trust model, things like that, where you're trying to bring your company into all these modern and new ideas, you really, to approach security there, you need an engineering mindset to say, okay, it's not just writing a super cool detection, it's building an environment where things are secure by design and where we don't allow ourselves to do unsecure things, right? And where we're monitoring for unsecure things automatically and we're remediating them automatically. So the types of organizations that I would recommend a security as code or detection as code model two are ones that are ready to approach security as a uh, engineering problem and are willing to sort of invest a certain amount of resources in tackling the engineering problems of security. I'd say there's something special about looking at security from an engineer's perspective. I remember being a part of a purple team engagement and we were actively testing detections that were written by some of our, our engineers. And there's just a different feeling when you wrote a detection 
all the way through yourself. You deployed it and it works. There's just a, a light that kind of goes off when you see something that you've spent time researching and developing and bring it to fruition. What would you say for, for folks out there that are curious about that side of the house that they've been using these solutions that come out of the box and detections that come out of the box, but now you can craft your own thing. Could you tell us a story about either a test or even a live incident where one of your detections worked and tell us about how that felt? It's always sort of like a mixed feeling. You know, every time I see alert hit our so course we run panther internally every time i see a panther alert hit one of our notification channels i'm like yes it worked and i'm like oh no <laughs> what did we right. see right what <laughs> bad thing happened so there's definitely that sort of two-sided nature of it i can say one specific example with a, a customer of ours i won't say the name but they were running panther and you know we've got open support channels with them and they reported hey you're seeing this this weird alerting behavior you know we're getting a bunch of alerts for this thing that should never be happening you know, there's something wrong with Panther. And we're like, okay, well, if you say it should never be happening, and we looked into that with them, and we did some investigating on the Panther side, like what could be causing this? And then it turned out at the end of the day, it was happening, <laughs> you know, they were actually having an incident. That was one of our out-of-the-box detections that we shipped to them in that case. But in general, you know, the sort of gap from, I wrote this super cool thing to, wow, it actually caught something. Uh, it's a pretty short step. You know, it's a pretty short step when you were following these sort of engineering mindset to security. It's it's uh, we have a pretty fast turnaround time on our ability to push out new rules, get them reviewed, get them deployed into production. And, and so we'll have things like, you know, hey, we wrote this rule for a demo we want to do for a customer. And then it's awesome. You know, for that one in particular, a customer was running uh, Okta as their sort of, you know, SSO provider. And they said, we would like a detection that's fines if someone logs in in two geographically distinct locations, right? Like sort of the, the classic yep. geographically improbable login. I'm sure you're familiar. Yeah, um, Superman analysis. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So as part of proving out the value of Panther to this customer, we worked with on it. You know, we provided some guidance. They did most of the work of writing the detection themselves. We came in and afterwards and put some fit and finish on, on the detection they wanted to write. And, you know, after it was all said and done, we're like, hey, this is a great detection. We want to add this to our open source detection repo, they said, okay, we did that, we deployed it. And then the next week, actually, we got a hit on that alarm in our internal instance. We're like, what? What's going on? Turns out it was two developers sharing credentials for a testing environment. So mm. we do end-to-end -end integration tests and they were testing something and one person logged in and then sent the credentials to someone else. So it, it got it right there. Like, that's crazy. You know, we wrote this for our customer because the customer had this good idea. I mean, the customer really wrote it. We provided some guidance on it and they signed off on us putting in our open source repo to make available to the rest of the customers. But uh, yeah, then a week later, it detected something. Luckily, in that case, it was, you know, developers doing developer things, right? <laughs> but um, yeah, it was pretty cool to see just how rapidly it went from here's an idea a customer has to something that we deploy into our own environment to something that was firing alarms. You know, when I'm looking at detections, some of the things that pop into my mind are detecting for low-hanging fruit. Maybe I'd be looking mm -hmm. for 2FA violations or logins that sure. didn't go through 2FA or, and things like that. What are the categories of detections? I'm sure there's like some faulty engineering detections, attack detections. What are the categories there? And what are some of the most high and impactful types of the detections that you think all organizations can at least explore? 
I have that exact same sort of mindset of, of you where it's, you have these different sort of levels of detections, right? So I have my own words for it, but uh, I like to call it level zero detections. That's the stuff that you don't even have to think about, right? It's like someone logged in without MFA, that should be an alert if you always use MFA, right? Like there's nothing customer or advanced about that. You're just looking at a single event, single point in time, that should never happen. It happened far and away, right? Very simple, low hanging fruit. Then you have like your level one detections. Level one detections start to be a little bit more advanced. Maybe looking at two or three or four, you know, disparate events over time. Maybe you're sort of sort of making a baseline for what's normal. You know, we have some of our detections which track all of your user logins, you know, finds a baseline behavior and then alerts when there's something outside the baseline. These things are slightly more advanced. They take a little bit more maybe tuning to get set up the first time. But fundamentally, you know, you can take the same logic and drop it into any organization and it should get eventually sort of burned in or tuned to exactly what it needs to do. But then you have the really cool stuff, the advanced detections, what I call level two detections. For these ones, it's stuff that's either so custom to your environment or so advanced based on particular patterns that you've seen, they're really the only one that can effectively write it is someone in the organization. You know, so this is where we sort of try to hand things off to our customers and make the right tools and things available to them. But these types of detections rely heavily on organization specific workflows. Maybe you know that there's a bastion host, right, in your AWS organization, and all logins should happen through there. And so you can monitor any API calls in your AWS environment not coming from that bastion host's IP address. Bam, now you can catch that. That's something that has domain-specific, like organization-specific knowledge is required to craft that type of detection. Or alternatively, something like every time infrastructure is changed in production, there must be a corresponding PR in this repository, right? Now you're looking at two different sources of data. You're looking at AWS auto logs, and you're looking at GitHub you know, access logs or something like that. Uh, and you're correlating across these two things. And this is a more advanced uh, situation where not only looking at multiple data sources, but the specific policies or procedures that your organization has that you want to make sure are enforced. So that's what I would say is sort of the level two detections. And so where Panther likes to live is we want to hand you all the level zero and all the level one detections out of the box. You don't need to think about them. Everyone's written brute force login, right? No one cares about writing a new brute force login detection, that's lame. But then give you all the tools to build those level two detections, the really cool advanced ones that are specific, high fidelity to your environment and catch the bad guys, right? Doing stuff that is only easy to detect as bad because of the knowledge you have about your own organization. And that's where we try to help our you know, product evangelists within the organization and say, hey, here's the cool stuff you could do with Panther that is difficult to implement maybe in some other tool or whatever home homegrown system that's in place currently. I think you nailed it perfectly. When you're talking about those level two detections, the organization is really gonna have to understand what their environment looks like, what technology stacks are in their environment, what nodes and, and other things that do they need to know about the, the awareness of what is in their environment. What are some of the other tenants that folks would need to know about their environment in order to get to those level two type detections? So I think there's a few core tenants of security that are broadly applicable, and that's where we can kind of bring them in here. One of them is the classic identity and access management, right? That's sort of where I 
customers off in security in a professional sense, looking at who has access to do what and should they have access to do that, right? So maybe, for example, uh, here's a detection that we have internally that I would call maybe a level two type detection. We have an AWS organization set up. In that organization, we have a identity account. You know, nothing super groundbreaking here, but we have a specific AWS account that's just for authentication of all of our users. From that account, they assume roles into other accounts, right? So we have a series of detections that are looking for the fact that there's only IAM users in the identity account. People are only logging in there. People always have MFA there. You know, when people are assuming roles into other accounts, are they assuming roles into accounts that they should have access to, right? Ideally, in the best case, that's all enforced in the infrastructure itself. But this is sort of that validation that, okay, these are the policies we've set for ourselves. This is doing the right thing. And then we run a detection saying, all right, do we see any identity access? Do we see anyone doing things or authenticating to systems that we know they shouldn't be and catch the mismatch from what's supposed to be happening and what's actually happening in the learn about things like that. So identity and access management, that's of course a big one. Another one that's, you know, can become more specific is looking at things like network flows. You know, it's kind of hard to say in the general case, this system should talk to this system, right? Or this system should never talk to this system. That's the type of thing you really need your organization specific knowledge to say, yes, totally makes sense that this web server is, you know, communicating to this database server on port 22. Maybe that's totally cool. Where in general, you might say, ah, oh, that's kind of weird. Why is a web server connecting to, to this database server? And what is the standard port for SSH, right? That's might be an unusual thing that we'd write for a general case rule, but you know for your organization that it is okay in circumstances X, Y, Z. And that's something that we can't do for people. But I'd say identity access management is a broad category. You know, network uh, flow analysis is a broad category. Another one is anything that's monitoring activity on endpoints. So we support a, a number of endpoint agents for log ingestion, like, I don't know, CrowdStrike and OS query and things like that. Um, so we can write general purpose rules to say your endpoint should never be doing X, Y, Z, but really it's the knowledge that your organization has about the engineering org versus the sales org, or maybe C-suite people versus whatever, um, their executive assistants, things like that, where you can start to bring in uh, knowledge about who can and should be doing what on their endpoints and apply that specific knowledge to your rules, uh, things like that. So run that quote that you said earlier mm. by me again. I think it was security is an engineering related issue. Security is an engineering problem as well. Engineering as, problem. Yeah. I like that because you kind of points to where you're going to look at how to solve the issue. I'm sure with all of these detections, I'm, if I had Panther, I would probably turn on everything. I would turn on everything and probably be surprised with how much alerts that I get or how many hits that I get by turning on these detections. If security mm -hmm. could be, you know, an engineering related problem or a uh, domain, what kind of engineering related feats typically reduce all of this volume and alerts? Chris and I were on a webinar uh, pretty recently and they were saying asset management and discovering your assets was a great strategy for reducing alerts and incidents. What is your take on engineering changes that can reduce alerts and incidents that these detections are going to fire off? That's, I think that's a really, really good question. It really kind of gets at the heart of, you know, what we're trying to accomplish with Panther. 
And for me, what you want to look at is basically any time a human is doing something without thinking about it, a computer should be doing that thing, right? So if you detect something and every time the action is blacklist and IP address, the human should not be doing that, right? You're wasting some analyst's time. You're introducing delay while the human waits to do it, you know, all these things. So if you detect something is bad and the, the response is every single time blacklist the IP address that was related, have a computer do that and they can automate it, you know? Similarly for this sort of CI CD pipelines I was talking about earlier, you know, we had an old process whereby someone would write a new detection, it would get approved, it would get merged into our master branch. And then someone's job would be to every once in a while go manually upload all of the new detections to Panther. And that just was not something we wanted because it was basically every time you make a change, you need to go manually take this step. But it was the same step every time. So why are we wasting humans' time? Why are we introducing latency? Because there will always be latency if, if you're waiting on a person to do something. Have a machine do it. And what that really is just means automation. So I think one of the biggest things we look at for security as an engineering problem is automated away as much as possible. With things like doing detections as code and stuff like that, you can start to leverage a lot more powerful automation tools than you used to be able to do. So things like uh, we support as an alert destination, uh, AWS SNS and SQS, and we have a nice integration with Tynes as well. These are the AWS services can be used to integrate into your custom, you know, remediation pipelines. And then Tynes, of course, is a great tool for automating lots of types of actions. But the idea is that if you can write good detections that can reliably find bad stuff, you should always be automatically responding to those. It gets back to what you said, you know, if you have a flood of incidents come in, you're going to be spending hours or days, possibly weeks, you know, we've all <laughs> worked in corporate security jobs. You you have a lot more going on than just responding to detections, right? So if, if you have turned on a new system and, you know, 2000 alerts come in, that was not a very useful system to you, even if they're all true positives, because by the time you, you work through the first 1,999, that 2,000th alert, is it's too late to, to do anything about it. So we believe strongly in automating processes, automating the building of detections, automating the deployment of detections, automating the remediation of issues, things like that. Having security people spend their time building and, and analyzing and creating tools and then let the computers spend their time, you know, executing these repetitive tasks. That's what computers are for. That's not what our security people are for. You just touched on a Hacker Valley hot button. We haven't (laughs) spoken about it in a minute. And I'd love to hear if Ron, if you change your theory, Ron has this theory Uh that in a perfect world, you can pretty much automate all of security operations. I think Mm. you can get close but I think there's just a level of human that has to be in the process. There has to be a level of risk acceptance that at the human level that has to happen. Could you automate that? Could you get it to a point where you have data points against assets and impact to the business and have it automatically decide whether to take that risk or not? Maybe, but I think that's closer to science fiction than science fact. So I would love to hear your thoughts. And then Ron, I definitely want to hear if you've changed <laughs> your tune since we had this last uh, conversation. I want to throw a little anecdote in here, call back to when I was in college. Uh, I was required to attend this course. There was just a bunch of seminars about 
concepts in computer science. And I was just there because I had to be there. But there's one that stuck out to me. And even now, all these years later, it still sticks in my head. And I think about this all the time. The idea was that machine learning, artificial intelligence, right, can do a lot of things. And they can do a lot of things that humans can't do. But humans can do a lot of things that even the smartest computer today and in the foreseeable future have no capability of doing. They actually took this uh, system and the design outcome was predict the final brackets for like um, some basketball tournament uh, or something like that. But uh, they had three groups, a group of humans that just did it, you know, people who'd follow basketball very closely, an artificial intelligence system that did it. And then what they called artificial, I guess, assisted intelligence, I forget the exact term, but basically having a computer providing a bunch of tools and systems and percentages and information to a human and having the human make the final decision. And of the three systems, you know, the one that was have a computer provide all the tools a human needs to just make a decision was the one that was most effective. So I think for me, what it comes down to is, you know, exactly what you said, that risk acceptance decision, that is where you do want a human involved, a human to think about, okay, the computer said with this percentage of certainty, this is this type of bad event. We have only ever seen this two other times in the past. Both times it was confirmed a bad event. All I have to do is click this button to make it go away, to you know, blacklist the IP or quarantine the host or whatever it is, right? You're providing all the information to that human. They have to do one thing, which is make a decision. Everything else the computer handles. They're not in there writing queries. They're not in there pulling in history. They're not in there going to their endpoint agent, having it pull in logs, dropping those into a system, plug it, none of that stuff. The computer did that already. It said, here's the five pieces of information you need. You're the human to make the decision. So I think that for a lot of things, it comes down to that's the best method is get the computer to do everything except make the decision, provide it all on a silver platter to the human, and the human says yes or no, right? Destroy it or don't destroy it, or quarantine it, or, or whatever the remediation is. And that's especially those sort of level two detections we talked about earlier where they're more advanced and they're considering so much more context than just a single event in isolation. So that's my take on it. I guess I'm in your camp then that you always need a human there at the end of the day for the really good stuff. (laughs) Sorry. Sorry to pick sides. You know, you were skating right on the fence and I was like, he's going to agree with me. (laughs) Yeah. My stance is still the same. And this is the funny point. You know, I think that it's just a different perspective. But the machine has all the data points. You were just describing that the machine pulled data from here and it pulled data from another tool, pulled data from GitHub. But then we give all that information to a human to decide yes or no. I think that at some point, you know, after so many decisions, we can tune in another model to make another decision on behalf of the human. I think that a lot of decisions are made by the machines, but I think the more sensitive ones that can interrupt production, business processes, I agree, those should probably be done by a person. But if it's not affecting production, I'm saying let a machine take care of it. <laughs> For sure. I agree with you, Ron. I mean, that, there's always a point to where you're thinking, could a machine make this decision? And even going through like thought experiments on my own, I'm thinking like, yeah, we could give a machine that information. Yep, a machine could probably come to that conclusion. But there are going to be some things, I think, just in the reality, like science fiction, like I was saying, yep, I think all the way in the end, a machine could do it. But in reality, I I just don't think, I don't think (laughs) we're there. And I don't think we'd want to be there because I do think that there's a part of humanity that, that makes 
cybersecurity interesting. I think there's a part of humanity that, you know, we rely on past experiences beyond what data was put into our brains. So if you think about when you, you look at things like diversity of thought, diversity of culture, people are pulling from things that aren't even closely tied to cybersecurity into their problem solving like skill set. And so sometimes there's going to be that misstep when it comes to, to being a machine. But I do think there's a little bit of play there. There's definitely being along the spectrum. Nick, I, I wanted to ask, you know, in terms of people wanting to take that next step into detections as code, to take their detection game to another level, instead of, you know, relying on older solutions, they want to step into something that's more modern. What is something that they can start doing today or tomorrow or within the next couple of weeks that can make them more safe when it comes to detections? Well, I'm sure my you know employer would find it remiss if I didn't say, hey, try Panther. <laughs> but outside of that, I would say the first thing you can do today is find whatever systems you have that you have security systems that are doing detections, if you have some. You know, if it's Splunk or if it's, you know, an Elk stack or whatever it is that's analyzing data, see if you can get all of your rules, your, your queries, whatever they're called, and get them out of that application and into a version control system, either a subversion or Git. Git's probably a little bit more popular. But just, just having those in a system that's tracking their changes over time, I think that's a relatively lightweight change you can do. That's going to have a lot of impact on your organization. So most people have those like, you know, 10 really cool guy queries that they wrote on their particular detection platform of choice, and they just live on that platform, right? And if you want to hand those off to someone else, it's a huge process. It's okay, well, I have to log in. I have to like share this query with that person, and then they have to like make a copy of it, and then they edit their copy, and I've got my copy because I don't want them to write my stuff, you know? And then you're both kind of going back and forth, and they've got two slightly different versions of the rule, and what's really going on, you know? Or you change something, right? You, you're like, oh, hey, I want to add this cool new thing. So you rip a bunch out, you put some new stuff in, and then it's running for a couple of weeks, and all of a sudden you're like, wait, this is not doing the right thing. I want to revert back to what I had before. Can't do it. There's no save here. History of that, of that query, right? So I'd say if you want to begin a small journey in a way that's pretty easy and doesn't have too much overhead, take what detections you have and whatever system that is, try to get them into a version control system. Maybe to start, that just looks like create a Git repository, put a bunch of query number one.txt files in there and just copy paste it back and forth between the two, right? And that's where you get started. Then maybe the next step is instead of changing it in, in the web app and then copying it into your repository, maybe first you change it in the repository, then you copy it to the web app, right? So now you've got someone, sort of a process built around your version control system. Then maybe you introduce, you know, code reviews. Say if you change a detection, someone else has to review and improve that on your team. If you're fortunate enough to have, you know, two technical people on your security team, which I know is not reality for a lot of people. And then finally, the big step, this is kind of the putting on your, you know, big kid pants and, and really jumping into it is automate that, you know, take the step to say, I'm going to build some system. And there's a lot of easy tools out there like Circle CI, super easy to integrate with that will run code for you when you merge it. Figure out the API for your application, you know. If you can figure out how to get an API token and then 
figure out how when you change a query, you can automatically upload that from version control to your detection tool of choice, right? I think that this is an early step that most organizations can take, especially those first few steps, which are relatively lightweight, that starts you down the journey of you know, detections as code and security engineering, you know, and building processes and pipelines which are automating these things. You no longer have to go manually upload it once it's automatically uploaded, right? You no longer have to manually share a link to a query to a coworker, has to click on it and then rerun the query when you can share a link to a GitHub pull request, right? That kind of thing. Nick, that is fantastic advice. I want to thank you so much for hopping on the mics with us and, and chatting with us. This was great, especially with the fact that you agree with me on our hot button item. <laughs> <laughs> I did want to ask for people out there that want to stay up to date with you, all the things that Panther Labs has going on, what are the best ways that people can do that? One area we can see a lot of the cool detection work that we're doing. We have a open source repository with all of our detections in it. It's called Panther Dash Analysis or Panther Lab slash Panther Analysis. Um, I'm sure we can get you a link to throw on with the podcast. Other than that, we've got a newsletter. You can sign up from our website. That's how you can keep up with Panther. As a security person, I'm just ever so much that touch of paranoia. I don't have a big social media you know, presence, but you can find me either in the Panther community Slack. I'm in a few other security Slack groups, the Cloud Security Forum, run by a great bunch of guys. You can try to find me on LinkedIn if you want. And if you look like a recruiter, I'll probably say no. But, you know, if you look like a cool security guy, I'll probably say yes. <laughs> so uh, that's where you can find me out there. Awesome. We'll be sure to include all of those resources for Panther Labs. And if anyone has any questions for Nick, shoot them our way too. We would love to have Nick back on the podcast. And with that, we'll see everyone in the next episode. If you found value in this content, it would mean the world to us if you shared it on social media, sent it to a friend, or talked about it over coffee. Thank you.